1: Hey everyone, you're listening to the Tennis.com podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Nina Pantic. This is a special episode with Katrina Adams, the former USTA president and the current vice president of the ITF. She's also on the Grand Slam board. And she is the executive director of the Harlem Junior Tennis and Education Program. Irina Falcone, my co-host, joins us in this episode as we talk with Katrina about everything. I mean, we start obviously with the coronavirus and how that's impacted tennis and the lives of everyone way beyond sports. Uh, something that's going to be talked about a ton in the coming weeks, especially on this show. But we start with that. But then we get into Katrina Adams' amazing story. She had a successful college career at Northwestern. She turned pro, reaches highs number 67 in singles, number 8 in doubles, reached the quarterfinals or better at every Grand Slam won 20 doubles titles before jumping into coaching and then a little bit of TV presenting and commentating before ruling the boardroom. This is somebody that's been on a ton of different boards and committees and just continues to absolutely rule the world. So let's hear from former pro and former USTA president Katrina Adams. Okay, Katrina, welcome to the tennis.com podcast. It is an honor to have you joining us today. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. I kind of want to start with the biggest uh, the biggest news these days, which is the coronavirus and how it's affecting all of us um, in large scale form and everyday form. And, and I know you mentioned that you are on self isolation. What is life like for you right now? Oh, let's see. life is pretty boring
0: right now. Um, being by myself in my apartment, where I've been since uh, Sunday night. Um, you know, it's it's pretty it's pretty scary. So what's Happened in America and across the world, um, but I was uh, in close contact with someone who contracted the virus at a at, at an event. Uh, found out on uh, Monday or Tuesday that they were actually contaminated or, or had contracted it, um, and I've been in isolation since. Fortunately. I had canceled uh, a trip to Switzerland for my ICF board meeting. Uh, chose to come to New York and just do it by phone. Prior to any knowledge of of what is what has transpired, so actually I've been home since uh, Sunday night. I was up at three a.m. on Monday on the call, you know, to uh, Switzerland, and for the next two days, and and so it's just been uh, it's been quiet around here.
1: I know you have a bunch of different job roles, especially when I was trying to figure out and research your life story. But one of them that stands out to me in this time right now and how things have gone in tennis in the past week is a VP at the ITF. So were you involved in that big decision to, to cancel tournaments?
0: Well, we did have As like I just mentioned, we had a board meeting um, that was in switzerland on monday tuesday wednesday of which i participated by phone and yeah the world of tennis is is kind of turned upside down as the world of sport has so you know following a lot of the statements you know indian wells was the first tournament to close and then miami and then both tours made statements of uh, stopping events Uh, we made the decision to postpone uh, fed cup finals which is uh, was to be played in Budapest for the first time, uh, the second week of April, and that's postponed um, to a later date. And from an ICF perspective, with uh, the other many other hundreds of events that they operate around the world, all of those have ceased as well in conjunction with uh, the ATP and the WTA tours.
2: So I know that um, obviously Italy is in just a state of crisis. Um, We have to mention that. And I know China was one of the first places to be affected by it. But here in America, did you ever feel like no chance it can be that bad? Like, were you ever thinking, like, no way is this really going to actually affect the sports world? Or were you in a sense of, oh, my gosh, this is really about to happen and a bunch of tournaments are about to be canceled and a lot of people's lives are about to be affected?
0: Well, you know what? I'm an optimist and always think for the po- think for the best, but I'm also a realist um, and I'm literal. So when this really started to unfold, you had to think that it was only a matter of time that the sports world was affected. I think initially, you know, what we were looking at was the upcoming uh, March Madness events when they started saying that people shouldn't be in you know, bigger crowds, et cetera. And then you started looking at the NBA and then you realized that it affected more than just those arenas, it affected all arenas. And it wasn't so much um, just about the fans and attendance, but what about the athletes and the players? They're the ones that are breathing all over each other, you know, every second of the game almost. Um, and you had to think about their health and their well-being, and not just them. You had to think about their families, who they're going home to um, at night. So, you know, it's just a trickle, a ripple effect on everyone. And I think, you know, the decisions that have been made in the sports world, as drastic uh, as they may be, I think it's the best thing that has happened to at least protect those athletes and their families and, and to, you know, at least to be owners of slowing down the transmission Uh, COVID-19
1: so the three of us have something in common we all played college tennis and I know that there's been obviously bigger storylines and not even talking about sports way beyond that but NCAA has been hugely affected all these seniors are are not going to get their chance to end their year so you know I think you guys are both phenomenal college players Irina. you know one NCAA ITA's Katrina, you won and say doubles titles. I mean, can you guys imagine having your senior year just taken away from you not because of injury but because of something that's so far beyond your control and it's it's something that we haven't really talked about.
0: Well, for me, I mean, listen, it's it's disappointing as an as an athlete, um, you know, who was a collegiate athlete and an NCAA champion as you mentioned, to not um see these young athletes be able to fulfill their dreams or at least you know, play in their national championships, no matter what sports they may be in. Um, you know, I was supposed to call the tennis, uh, men's and women's tennis NCAA championships alongside Sam Gore. Um, and, of course, disappointed that we won't be going to Tulsa, to Oklahoma State this year um, to call the championships. Hopefully it'll be back um, you know, in session in 21, uh, it will be back at the USCA National Campus in Orlando um, in 21. But you know, I just feel for the athletes. I feel for the seniors even more so. Those that you know, this is their last chance to go to the to the dance to to perhaps win a, a national title and and have that on their resume for the rest of their life. Uh, I know what it feels like to be referred to as an NCAA champion and you know my heart goes out to not just the athletes but the coaches the institutions and the families you know everyone who's poured their heart and soul into getting these athletes uh, to the best position possible to perform at their best to have a chance to to win a national title
2: Hey guys, we're here on the tennis.com podcast with Katrina Adams and we're talking to her today on how you can not only be a legend on the court, but also in the boardroom. Keep listening.
1: I'm curious how you made your transition. So now I'm going to flip over something a little bit less depressing. How you made your transition from, you know, you were an established college player to join the pro tour. What was that like for you?
0: You know, I think everybody's different. I think it has a lot to do with personality. I think it has a lot to do with who you are surrounded with. Uh, It has a lot to do with, uh, you know, your abilities. Um, You know, I was very fortunate. uh, You know, my first, I I was able to play the, uh, you know, the pro circuit and the challengers. um, You know, the summers of in between my freshman and sophomore summers of college to to really elevate my ranking and get some results and you know probably play one or two during the school year if it was uh on a christmas break or something like that to be able to add points and and get my ranking up um you know when i turned pro i actually took the fall quarter off of my junior year um as an amateur um to kind of try it and And it wasn't so much about trying it to compete to see if I, if I could succeed, but, you know, as a kid, you're used to playing tennis all day, every day, you know, every weekend there's a tournament in the summer, every week there's a, there's a tournament. But then once the school year came back, you know, there was some kind of normalcy. And, and so as much as I love to travel and as much as I love to compete, I wasn't certain that. I wanted to be able to do that week in and week out um, throughout the year. And because I'd never done it, I'd only done it you know, for the eight weeks in, in the summer and then you go back to school and, and it is what it is. But um, I had an agreement with, with um, Northwestern University and my coach um, that I would take the fall off, play as an amateur, meaning that whatever prize money I may have won, I only was able to accept my expenses uh, see how I did, see if I was able to get my ranking up. Um, if I was able to get my ranking up to to be on the main tour in the following year, which, which started in Australia, then I would turn pro. Um, if not, and and I didn't really enjoy that every week, I'd come back to school in January and never have the conversation again and, and finish out my, my college career. Um, I was lucky. Did well in the fall, continued to rise, get my ranking up. I uh, got direct entry into the Australian Open. And for me personally, that's when it was time to turn pro because I was on the main tour, I was in the main draw, and I had opportunities to get in more tournaments throughout the year. Um, I didn't want to turn pro just playing uh, challengers or pro circuit events where I was scraping week in and week out to maybe make $1,000 on those lower, lower, uh, tier tournaments. Um, I needed to be at the big dance, if you will, and to make sure to, to show myself that I belonged and that I had a career ahead of me. And that was my transition. And, um, I was very fortunate and was able to play for 12 years.
2: To have any career over 10 years is pretty incredible. Um, if you were to give advice to someone that is like coming on the tour, um, just one small, I know I'm sure that you can give dozens and dozens of pieces of advice, but what's one thing that you'd probably say to really focus on? Or what's one thing that really worked for you for your career?
0: Well, you know what? You're always say, would you do things differently? Um, you know, I, I probably wouldn't change anything because then my, my life experiences wouldn't be what they what they were or what they are. Um, but you know, my first advice is to stay healthy, you know, to, to do the proper training, to eat right, do what's necessary to keep your body 100% at all times. Um, and there are going to be days that you're not hundred percent, but you have to be wise about how you push through certain injuries, injuries or certain illnesses so that you do have longevity in your career. Um, tomorrow's never promised, not with life or not with injuries. And, and you have to be prepared for, for when those, um, when things don't go well, you know, or, or when you lose 10 matches in a row, which is 10 weeks on the tour, and it may not be 10 weeks in a row, but that 10 weeks could be spread over, you know, three or four months. And that's a long time to not win a match um, and to stay positive about, Going back and training hard and, and, and waiting for that opportunity to get that breakthrough because it only takes one match to turn your entire career around, um, you know, in, a, in an upward trend. And, and so it's really, you know, the way that the tour is now, it's at, at least they're not zigzagging around the world every, every week to different environments. It's pretty systematic as to where the tours are. So it helps them. Travel easier, and uh, but it's really about doing your research, working hard, and doing what it takes to be the best you. Don't try to be the best someone else um, because you're the one that's out there that's competing, that's grinding, and um, and you're the one that's in your room at night that that's either elated or or disappointed um, on your performance that day, and and how do you rebound for the next day because. The good thing about tennis, typically is that there's always next week. Um, but even that may be changing now in the climax of, in the climate that we're in, you know, here today in March of 2020.
1: Irena mentioned that you had a stellar pro career. I mean, it's an understatement. You got, you know, ranked as high as number 67 in singles, eight in doubles, 20 titles. Uh, you retired in 1999. Again, just is all, uh, this is all Googleable information, but I just wanted to figure out how did you transition and then from this pro tour to this career you have now? I think people know you maybe more as a USTA president, as kind of someone that's a leader in, in, in sports. More in the boardroom than maybe on the tennis court, but you did have this career. What was your break in your life like going from player to businesswoman?
0: You know, it's very interesting because uh, my, my path is not the, con- the traditional or the conventional way. Um, you know, when I retired, I actually became a national coach for the USDA. Um, it was mid-season in my career. Um, a position had opened up. I had expressed interest of, of maybe wanting to work with the USPA a year or so, uh, a year before that, when um, I knew that I was probably going to be going into my last year of competition. And, um, you know, I got a call during the French Open at Roland Garros um, from the director of women's tennis to ask me, would I be interested in being uh, you know, a national coach. And I was like, of course I would. I'm like, well, yeah, went for when she's like, Oh, like last week. I was like, huh? <laughs> so, you know, I'm, I'm still in Paris playing. And um, I came back uh, was the first year that I actually didn't stay through Wimbledon. I came back to America. I was living in Houston between the French and Wimbledon and had some hardcore conversations and some and thoughts on, um, you know, if I, if I pass up this opportunity, I'm not sure if it'll come again. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I'm in my last season. I was kind of playing through the season hurt and, um, you know, made an agreement that I was going back to play Wimbledon. I would start, you know, when I was done with Wimbledon and that, you know, I had to finish at the U.S. Open. I just couldn't cut my career short like that. That's not the way I wanted to end it. Um, long story short, I became a national coach uh, for about four and a half years and, and then they did some restructuring in that department um, of which I found myself without a job at that point and did some soul searching and tried to figure out what is it that I really wanted to do next. Um, I studied communications uh, at Northwestern and always wanted to broadcast, be a commentator. I'd done some guest commentating in my career at various tournaments, and, you know, I I went after it. I thought uh, Tennis Channel was not open yet. They had not, I mean, they had not, gone on air yet found myself getting a meeting with them and telling them that they needed me more than I needed them at the time um, which absolutely was not true but and that opportunity came up and and opened up another door for me and a a long-term career that I still do I still commentate um, not as much in the last few years when uh, when I was the president of the USTA but fast forward you know, I got involved in the USTA as a volunteer. Um, I, was, I served on a committee. I was able to attend um, like their annual meeting and get to know all the volunteers, but really get to understand the USTA from a grassroots perspective and understand who they really are um, and what they really do. Because when you're a player, all you know is that you play USTA tournaments and that you have a USTA ranking and you may be on a USTA team uh, if you're lucky enough. And, and I was all of those things. But I didn't understand um, all that the USTA did to give back to local programs, programs that I actually grew up in, um, how they supported those programs and how they supported athletes like me at a very young age. And what it meant to society um, to have the sport of tennis in every community possible. And so, as I got engaged on, um, on the committee side, I then ran and, and, and joined the board. And, and once I got on the board and, and really had clarity, um, you know, I saw myself six years in saying, I can make a difference. And for me, everything that I do or try to do is to make a difference and, and, and have an impact on what it is that I give my time and energy to. So as I continued to be on the board year after year and year after year and poured my energy and my time into it, I saw opportunities that were out there for, for people like me who came up in a grassroots program, who played junior tennis, who played high school tennis, who played college tennis who played professional tennis and who was also a coach. I understood the lingo of millions of people and hundreds of thousands of people around um, the U.S. and felt that I could relate to them and could communicate with them, but also speak for them. And, and that was really how it manifested for me to uh, ultimately want to be uh, the leader of the USTA, of which I then became um, the president, chairman, and CEO in, in 2015.
2: Well, dang, that sounds like a pretty stellar career past your pro career. That's awesome, Katrina. Just, I mean, I just want to take time to just congratulate you. That's a pretty amazing in so many fronts, and yeah, it's been it's been pretty amazing just hearing about how your career has just almost it, it's like fine wine. It's gotten better with age, right? <laughs> No, absolutely. I mean, listen, I grew up, I grew up in Chicago.
0: I grew up in the inner city of Chicago, but I did grow up in a program similar to the one that I'm running in Harlem. So, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's the, the USCA foundation's um, motto is, is serving up dreams and changing lives. And, and that's exactly what this sport does. And that's exactly what my entire Goal has been um, in giving back to grassroots tennis is is where I can make a difference um, and change lives in others and create opportunities because there are multiple people there we call it a village there was a village that raised me to get me to the to where I am and provide the opportunities that were bestowed upon me and it's my obligation and my duty to reach back and pull the next generation forward to provide the same opportunities. No, you won't walk in the same footsteps, but you can walk in the same path of success, make it your own success, and make sure that you give back along the way as well.
1: With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles. We win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hi, everyone. listening to the Tennis.com podcast with special guest Katrina Adams. She's telling us about her experiences playing as a college player pro and as the president of the USTA. Keep listening. And you're now... The executive director of the Harlem Junior Tennis and Education Program. So was that something that you were working on while you were still at the USTA? Or have you totally left the USTA and are now fully in that role? Because it feels like you have a lot of things going on, despite the start of this podcast, how the world is ending. It does feel like you're still very, 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 very busy.
0: <laughs> yeah, so my, my tenure at the USTA is done uh, as far as my title is concerned. I am the immediate past president. My tenure ended at the end of 2018. Um, Patrick Galberth is now the president and chairman. Um, and we have a new CEO of the organization, um, Mike Douse, who's uh, the successor of Gordon Smith. So, actually, during my tenure, we had some governance change. In, um, we had a governance change, and I surrendered the title of CEO um, in my role, and it was transferred over to the COO, executive director at that time, who was Gordon Smith. So, having left um, the volunteer sector of the USPA now, um, I'm still on the board. I'm in my final year, final term and final year of being on the board, which will end at the end of 2020, Um, and I am back engaged as the executive director of um, the Harlem Junior Tennis Medication Program. I never left the program. I was always involved, but I took a hiatus for four years um, while I was trying to run tennis nationally as opposed to just. Um, in in New York City, um, so yeah, I've been busy. Uh, but again, you know, Harlem is. You know, I was introduced to the program. I probably visited the program when I was on tour back in the nineties. Uh, I do remember once or twice uh, stopping by and and hitting with the kids during the U.S. Open. Um, so I knew about the program many years before, but not to the degree that I do now. So I was actually. Um, a couple of the board members that I knew, um, a couple of people that I knew that were board members at the time, back in 2005, reached out to ask me if I would be interested in coming to have a look at the program and and possibly running the program. Um, Roberta Graves, who's actually one of my best friends was on the board and, and picked up the phone and called me. I was living in Florida and I was like, what? (laughs) <laughs> so I had been in, I had been in conversations with her saying, you know, I may I'm thinking about moving back to Chicago, and maybe starting my own um, foundation or a, a program, et cetera. And I had that conversation with her maybe months before that. And so that, that stayed in her head when they were having a board meeting and, and the program at that time was really struggling. And, you know, they were, Contemplating closing their doors, and they decided to look in a different direction. Um, Gave me the opportunity to come and be a part of it. Um, Said, "Listen, if you can't turn it around in two years, it's not your fault. You know, we—it's our fault. Um, But we'd love to have you a part of the program, et cetera." So, you know, fifteen years later, almost fifteen years later, I'm I'm still there. The program is still going. Um, You know, we've we've thrived in in recent years, but you know, it's a challenging time right now as business is closing and, you know, the stock market's dropping and, you know, we make our, we, we run our program on donations and grants and, and fundraisers. And, you know, it's a, it's a scary time right now for, for programs like myself and others who, you know, we have a gala that was scheduled April 6th um, and we've just postponed it to September 21st. But, in doing so, you know, that's a flow of income that we would have had from the gala that we're not getting right now. And, and so it's a, a testy time for us and, and other programs that are in this similar situation. Um, but this too shall pass. You know, at the end of the day, it's about providing opportunities for kids, um, giving them a, a safe haven to, to go to, to learn a sport for a lifetime to enhance their ac- academics and, and, and have enrichment programs that are, that are there for them to help them earn a college scholarship. Um, and, and hopefully we can withstand this time and, and um, succeed and move forward and we'll probably have to have some rebuilding to do, but um, it's because of the kind hearts of, of donors that are out there that keep us afloat and hopefully that will continue, will continue to happen.
1: I do hope that things do turn around quickly and that by September, everything is, is back on and, and programs like that do manage to get through this. I mean, I, I have a feeling that it'll all by end of 2020. I mean, i have been trying to be positive, but also realistic, like you said in the beginning. So hopefully things do turn around. But I do want to ask you one last thing. And, you know, maybe it's obviously hard right now, but do you still play tennis?
0: Yeah, I still get out there a little bit. I've got really bad knees, unfortunately, and haven't taken the time to to get them uh, repaired, if you will. So I don't hit a lot because, uh, you know, I get out there for 20 minutes and then I'm I'm in pain for a few days afterwards. But um, I still love the sport and I'm looking forward to getting um, on the mend so I can really get back out there. I miss the competition. Um, I, I miss the camaraderie of, of just – talking trash on the court. I love that. And, um, you know, and I miss beating up on the kids walk in as if I can, you know, go out there like I'm 20 years younger and, and, and and play. Um, but yes, I need to play more, but yeah, I do still play.
1: I mean, former top 100. I'll 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 always play. Yeah. That's, that's the idea, right? This is a game for life. So we're going to get through this, this season and sports is not the most important thing right now, but definitely, you know, kids in your program are. So hopefully everything does get a lot better, but I want to thank you for your time today. And we were going to talk with you again sometime before that next event, because things will be better.
0: Awesome. I really appreciate your time. Um, you know, there's a lot going on in the world that's bigger than our sport, but there's really nothing bigger than kids. And, and so, uh, that's why I do what I do, um, with the Harlem dream tennis education program and, and hopefully, uh, you know, if we have some new listeners out there, maybe we'll gain some new supporters along the way as well.
2: Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. From the tennis
1: channel podcast network. This has been the tennis.com podcast. Be sure to subscribe to stay caught up. We're available on Apple podcasts, Spotify, and every major listening app, as well as tennis.com slash podcasts. You can also see the videos of our episodes on tennis channels, YouTube page, and Tennis.com's Facebook page. We're your hosts, Nina Pantic and Irina Falcone. We'd like to thank our team, editor and audio designer and video editor, Christina Koseva, producers Alexa March and Sean O'Malley, and executive producers Shelby Coleman, Kyle Einhorn, and Andy Chu.